What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. We're your hosts, James and Anthony. In today's episode, we will be discussing The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, directed by David Fincher, released in 2011. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to our show. We're happy to be here. We're going to do The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which is, I think, a really underrated film in his filmography. I adore the film. Yeah, this came out in 2011 on Rotten Tomatoes. It is an 86% critic score, an 86% audience score. Pretty Dead even. Pretty rare to get that yeah. same number. IMDb, it's a 7.8. And this is not a remake of the Swedish movies, the original ones. There's an original trilogy starring... Numi Rapace, but this is just think of it as a second adaptation of the book. It's not, you know, we're remaking the movie for yeah, It's an Hollywood. American adaptation, yeah. Yeah, and David Fincher, one of the best filmmakers of all time. This might be his most underrated movie, maybe his most underappreciated besides like this and maybe, what's the one with uh, Panic Room? Not Panic Room, um, Game. The, uh, the, game? the Game. That's another underrated yeah. David Fincher movie. This one is a very long, slow burn, kind of like Zodiac. It's probably, you know, showcases his skill as a director showing the mundane, making it seem interesting because of all the movies I've ever seen in my entire life. This might have the most procedural research done in a movie before. Yeah. Like in terms of like photo, uh, like computer screens and, and books, documentations yeah. and books. And it, a lot of his movies have that, you know, Seven and the Social Network were on computers and stuff like that. He makes it look interesting. But this one is just countless scenes of it he does really interesting things to keep you engaged even though there's a lot of investigation that we're experiencing as audience members screenplay was by steve zylan who did a bunch of his movies moneyball schindler's list gangs of new york american gangster so excellent writer and based obviously on the first book of the trilogy written by steig larson larson it's actually a, a pretty tragic story he wrote uh the novels in his spare time as a hobby he wasn't an, a full-time novelist, and he actually passed away before these books were ever published. And I believe it's his wife who obviously knew that he was writing the books and how passionate he was about them. After he passed away, she's the one who spearheaded getting them published. And so, uh, unfortunately, Larson uh, had no idea that his books would be a cultural phenomenon around the world because when these came out, it was um, the late 2000s, and then the early 2010s, they started being published in America. Uh, everybody was reading them. It became a sensation, and everybody loved it. And the, when the, the Swedish films came out, we, lo- we saw that trilogy. So it's actually kind of – it reminds me of um, the author of Moby Dick passed away before Moby Dick became uh, – Herman Melville. Herman Melville before, before it became uh, a My sensation. Guy. And so he didn't even know that – he died broke. 
And so he had no idea that people would love his writing. Just same, like Vincent Van Gogh. Yeah, exactly. Same thing with Larson, although I don't think Larson was like, the words broke, but this was just a, his side thing that he did for fun. And I, um, unbelievably, it became, uh, he became, ended up becoming an amazingly talented writer. And the story is so unique and original and fantastic. And he's, his characters are incredible. And the world that he built is just so fascinating. Uh, there's nothing like it. And it's a really special book series. And the Swedish films, they did the full trilogy. That is really excellent. Uh, and then Fincher, I think, made the strongest of all of the adaptations with this film. Yeah, those movies are really great. And we we got a star uh, from Numi Rapace. Who, she's amazing. She's amazing. Yeah. She's in a bunch of movies. She was in the Prometheus reboot, basically, of the Alien franchise. She also was big in Icelandic film and Swedish film. She... Was basically she was most recently in Lamb. Yeah, she starred in Lamb yeah. and helped get that project made. So she's got some pull in the, in the film industry now, which is great. And she's such an awesome actress. She's great as Lisbeth Salander. I would say I would say that she's the perfect Lisbeth. And although I think Numi, I mean Rooney, <laughs> Rooney did an excellent job in this film. But I think I think Numi's just. I think she was the perfect Lisbeth. I think it's because she's Swedish. She speaks Swedish. It kind of it's a Swedish movie. It's different yeah. when you have actors who are you know are American playing Swedish characters. I think it kind of takes that out of it. Kind of like how yeah. a lot of the actors in this movie, like Stellan Skarsgård's obviously Swedish, and this is the first film in over twenty years where he actually slept in his own bed <laughs> while making a movie because he's been working in Hollywood for so long. But you know, he's, he's from from Sweden. And obviously his kids are from there as well. Good stock. Yeah, so Alexander Skarsgård <laughs> and Bill Skarsgård. Some good genetics going on. But he's been working in Hollywood for so long that he doesn't even work that much in Sweden anymore. But he got to change of pace because they shot this in Stockholm and in Sweden. And so I think the the having actors who are either British and American – and if they're either doing a Swedish accent or attempting a Swedish accent, it maybe doesn't come across well to viewers and audience members. Like Rooney and, and some of the other Americans in the film, it's not completely like a perfect Swedish accent. And Daniel Craig is doing his normal accent in his voice, which is common in movies. You'll have an actor come in and just do their normal accent if it's like a, a film that takes place internationally. It's not that big of a deal. You just kind of accept it. That's how all foreign – like. All American movies before like nineteen like ninety, if they were based in a foreign setting, uh, with foreign characters, they it would just be Americans or British people in the roles, and they would just speak with their own accents. Which I think I think it worked out because Craig is such a talented actor, and it's great. It was great to see him outside of James Bond because he he was just doing like back to back Bonds, and then he did this, and I think it actually works with him having the British accent, especially because. Uh, the other accents aren't perfect. Uh, Joel Kinnaman, ironically, the only Swede in the the major Swede in the movie, only has one line besides Stellan Skarsgård. <laughs> oh yeah, besides Stellan. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Um, and they, I mean, Stellan's accent, it's it's real. Uh, but I, I like how Craig went British. It might have worked better if everyone did British. I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure. Possibly not. But it's. I think it was a smart move. He's the one who decided I'm not doing Swedish accent. That would be dumb. And I, I don't want to be. I don't want it to be distracting. So I think it worked out that Daniel Craig didn't do the accent. I remember when it came out, people were like criticizing him for not doing an accent and just doing his natural one. But I think for the character, spaghetti westerns, man. Yeah, same yeah. thing. Once you're in, once you're five minutes into the movie, you're like, oh, this is Mikael Blomkiss. Like I totally, I totally agree with this. And unfortunately, it seems like the Dragon Tattoo series, uh, it's not. It doesn't seem like Americans would ever want it. Uh, this film grossed two hundred and forty million dollars, which is actually a very good. 
very good gross for an R-rated film, but it cost $90 million just at the budget, and the marketing was probably another $50 million. So the studio lost money. This was heavily marketed. It was yeah. all over the place. It, was, it had a huge marketing campaign. They were expecting this to be a big franchise, and to, to warrant the sequel, it, it need to it probably needed to make $350 million well, to Well, they get were a working on a sequel, but yeah. according to Fincher, there were so many delays and yeah. financial delays they that didn't he just want, gave up. They didn't want to give him the money that he required for a sequel yes. as well. So Sony never saw that as a... As being a smart investment after the 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 mediocre performance of this film, two hundred forty million dollars is nothing to laugh at. But when you invest that much in a movie, you want to get some return. Obviously, that's global. It was a hundred yeah. million yeah. in America and Canada, yeah. so less than a hundred million yeah. just in America. But that's that's good for an R-rated film. But for an R-rated film with this budget, it's not good. But also, I think it wasn't the film's fault. I think it was the studio's release date is I think what really affected its box office because so this film came out on December twentieth in twenty eleven because it was like marketed as like the feel bad Christmas movie yeah feel of the bad year. Christmas movie yeah so it came out twenty on December twentieth but the week before. Um, you had Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol and Sherlock Holmes and Game of Shadows. They had both come out that previous week. Really? Yeah. See you later, box office. So I, I think that especially both— This is the first yeah. Sherlock, right? Or uh, 2011's second, Game, Game of Shadows. Shadows. So both those audiences, they'll eat into the audience that's going to see this film. So I think releasing it so close to those huge movies was a mistake. If they had released it maybe at the end of the year for the 31st, it probably would have done a, mu- a lot better because its opening weekend was only $20 million. And this is a movie where when you're putting in this much money, you want at least like 35, 40 million opening weekend. So I think it could have done that and could have performed a lot better if the studio had given audiences enough time to see those two big movies, the franchise movies. And then maybe more more of those people would have gone to see Dragon Tattoo. Or drop it before those because who wants to go to the movies on like December 30th? You've been yeah. traveling, holidays and all that, and New Year's coming up. So that's a tough window to open up with and yeah. big movies to open up against. So that's probably a major part of why it wasn't yeah. super successful. Now, before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast, besides using our coupon codes with our sponsors, is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. Get awesome perks like our personalized videos for you patreon shouts on the show weekly bonus episodes for every single patron as well as ten dollar twenty five dollar and one hundred dollar tier patrons have access to our discord where we interact with you every day and have watch parties and stuff like that super fun twenty five dollar and one hundred dollar tier patrons also get their own custom episode that we make for you you pick the topic whether it's movies or whatever we'll film something for you specifically we also launched our podcast masterclass online course so for anyone who wants to start a podcast or improve their current podcast our 22 chapter 46 video lesson course give you all the secrets behind the scenes of our show the link is podcastmasterclass.teachable.com or it's on our homepage of our website, raidersofthelostpodcast.com. It's right there. Be sure to follow, subscribe, you're ever listening, hit the notification bells, leave those five-star reviews. We really appreciate it. Now, let's get back into The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which does have quite a few departures from the book. Now, if you've never read the book, I'm going to just say a few differences between the movies and the books and the pros and cons that come with each of those. If you want to read the books... Skim ahead like a minute. Yeah. If not, don't worry about it. And the books are great. Yeah. And yeah. Slightly They're different than the Swedish. But I also yeah. highly recommend watching the Swedish trilogy. Yeah, Swedish trilogy. Really, is great. really good movies. Yeah. Um, now, departures from the book. Hardcore fans might be a little let down with some little things here and there, but you know, it's a movie. You know, tell a story a little differently. You got to move it faster because these, this book is it's dense. A dense book. A lot of characters. A lot of moving parts. Pros. 
in terms of departures from the book. The movie, we have a lot more time spent with Lisbeth. She is basically a co-lead with Mikkel, which I liked a lot because Lisbeth is very fascinating. And even though she's the best character in the series in general, obviously, she is the heart of the dragon tattoo. Mikkel gets a lot of time in the book. In the first book. A yeah. lot of his storyline. Yeah. Also, Martin, I think, is a lot more sinister in the movie than he is in the books because of the fake persona. Spoiler alert. I'm giving you a warning right now. Yeah, spoilers. Of who the villain is. Martin, being the serial killer, in the movie, he's got, like, a very congenial, polite, even, like, likable personality on the surface that he puts to that he uses to, like, offset it. But in the book, he's kind of, like— more an asshole yeah he's, yeah he's more of a dick and more yeah. res- in like more reserved and you can tell there's something messed up with him going on i also like the change of his kill room uh in the movie and it, this is different from a swedish movie too and from the book in the kill room the way he d- incapacitates his victims is with the uh, the gas chamber in his in his room which i thought was a great addition from the for the movie also a, a more another positive pro to the departures is Lisbeth is somehow even more of a badass in the movie than she is in the books one of the most fascinating characters in fictional literature and movies in the last in this century for sure but in the movie i think she's just a lot more fun also at the end of the film lisbeth is responsible for running martin off the road resulting in his death whereas in the book he drives into oncoming traffic on purpose to kill himself so i think it's a lot better to have lisbeth be the cause of outsmarting this master serial killer to kill him. And him trying to escape rather than just deciding to end his life because he's caught. If you're a big fan of the books, there are some cons to this movie where, like, Lisbeth's history with her mother is never touched on. I don't even think they bring up her mother once. They bring up the father very briefly. Also, her hacker friends in that hacker group, very limited. They're here and there in a couple scenes, but they have a lot more to do in the book, especially the first half of the book. And lack of a focus on... All of the other Vangers, which is in the book, but in the movie, it really limits the amount of potential suspects for an audience member watching the movie. So you can kind of guess, like, there's like three people really you're guessing between who's going to be the killer. Because obviously it's going to be a main player in the plot. There's like three Vangers, two Vangers really that have the most screen time. And also the ending in terms of who Harriet ended up being. And Harry in the book, we learned that she escaped to Australia and then... Uh, Mikael and Lisbeth uh, track her down to Australia and then reunite her with uh, with her uncle. Whereas in the movie, uh, I think it was actually a better. Ch- I think it worked out better for the movie because it moved the plot. It, was, it just had to be done quicker. Mikael just realizes that Harriet has been disguising herself has has basically uh, taken over the identity of her cousin and of Martin's cousin, and so that's why Martin doesn't know where Harriet is and because she's been living in London and hasn't been back to Sweden in so long she's been able to fly under the radar so she's just been she's changed her identity to someone else in the family living in London yeah Anita who they explain in the movie she Anita got remarried under a different name without anyone in the family knowing yeah and then Harriet took her persona and also I liked how they brought Harriet aka Anita aka Harriet into the story earlier we got introduced to her so that when we find out who she is we have an emotional connection to the situation which I think works better cinematically rather than it works better in a book when you just kind of just like find out who they are you can after the climax of the book you spend another 80 pages in the story and that's fine because it's a book but with a movie you want the climax in the finale to happen 
relatively close to the end of the runtime of the movie. You don't want like another movie to take place after the the finale. But they do pay respects to the books in yeah. terms of having like another movie after the climax of the film. It's kind of like the No Country for Old Men adaptation of that of the book by Cormac McCarthy by the Coen Brothers. You can see many studios and filmmakers just kind of cutting that last 15 20 minutes yeah. of the death of Saying Llewellyn it's not important. being the climax in the end of the story. But, you know, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, so much actually happens after the mystery is solved and after Elizabeth figures in, saves Mikael, and Mikael and Elizabeth figure everything out and, and take Martin down. You know, Elizabeth ending up stealing 2.0 billion euros from Venerstrom <laughs> and then also helping Mikael clear his name with the evidence against Venerstrom to become a publisher again and help Millennium Magazine and just basically change the court of public opinion against him and also a little more touching on the relationship between Mikkel and Lisbeth, which unfortunately at the end of the film ends negatively where he see she sees him kissing uh, Erica, which obviously happens in the book, and then throwing the jack in the dumpster. So sad. Unfortunately, we don't get the full trilogy, the Hollywood version, to see how that re- relationship continued and what happened. I recommend the Swedish trilogy if you want to find out if you never read the books. Yeah. It's a it's a complex relationship. After that moment, the next two chap the next two books are it's the relationship is very complicated after that because and that's I mean, Lizbeth, I think she's such a fascinating character and she's defined by her past and also because of her past and when she was a kid she tried to burn her her father alive. And ever since then she's been deemed a ward of the state and that's why she has um people overseeing her basically her entire finances in her life. And Lizbeth has isolated herself from everyone and pushes everyone away. And in the books, it's described that's why she dresses the way she dresses. That's why she she tries to appear off-putting to other people to prevent them from getting close to her, to prevent people from even approaching her to talk to her. She doesn't want anyone near her at all. Uh, and th- everything is a defense mechanism to prevent people from getting close to her. And that's why it's actually really touching her and Mikael how their relationship kind of blossoms in this film because uh, and through and he doesn't even try it's just because he's kind and respectful towards her she begins opening up and laying down her barriers and makes him breakfast and wants to buy him a present and and wants to see him and wants to talk to him it's actually really beautiful when you understand how 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 much the character's been through and how she's been treated her li- her whole life to to open up to a man especially in such an intimate way and an emotional way it's really endearing and then that's why the ending is so tragic for her because she wants to start a relationship with this man she's buying him a present it's a leather jacket that he had the identical replica the identical leather jacket he had when he was in his 20s i don't think that's in the movie yeah no it's in the movie the photo of it yeah the photo, oh, yeah, the photo of it. you're right um and she's making an like a big grand gesture to show that i want you in my life and she discovers that even though he is kind to her he still has this relationship with erica and that's it's it's really tragic for her because she's finally found someone she thinks she can you know be with yeah, it's unfortunate. And Elizabeth Salander is, like I said, one of the most interesting fictional characters made in the 20th century for sure. And I wish we got the trilogy because I think what David Fincher would have done was incredible. Was is incredible. The books are so damn good. And then the the series was continued by another author with the girl kicked the hornet's nest, which was just turned into a movie by Fede Alvarez. It's a pretty good movie. No, and the girl in the spider's web. Oh, I'm sorry, the spider's yeah. web. Kick the hornet's nest is the third, third one. Yeah. Third, uh, yeah, the spider's web. Fede Alvarez made that, the guy who made Don't Breathe. It's a pretty good movie. It didn't really warrant a sequel, unfortunately, and didn't do super well at box office. Yeah, 35 wise. million. But Lisbeth Salander, I hope they keep trying to make tell this story of this character because, you know, 
so fascinating, so, so unusual for a protagonist or a hero of a story. You know, Elizabeth has a genius IQ. She has a perfectly photographic memory. She's highly inquisitive, horrifically tra- traumatic past because of the abuse her and her family suffered from her father, which if you want to learn more about the father, read the full trilogy. It yeah. gets wild. Yeah. Um, and like Anthony said, she's a ward of the state and even... Mikkel asks Elizabeth, how is a 23-year-old the ward of the state? And in general, the term ward of the state— Such an impressive 23-year-old. Yeah, yeah. but in general, a 23-year-old in general, because the war, the term ward of the state means a child who is determined by state where the child resides is a foster child, a ward of the state, or is in the custody of a public child welfare agency. So the, the state still recognizes her as a child, even though she's 23, year old, 23 years old. Because of her past, like Eddie said, she lit her father on fire when she was 12 years old. Got about 80% of them, but didn't kill him. She's defined by her loneliness. She's exceedingly antisocial. She has an inability to empathize with anyone. She trusts basically no one. Like Anthony said, she's hiding behind the aesthetic. And her reveal of her face in this movie for the first time, we've talked about it before in Fincher episodes, is he's such a brilliant filmmaker. He shows everyone's reactions to Elizabeth Salander before we actually in the camera get a good shot of her face and everything. You know, she pulls up in the motorcycle, going up the elevator, walking down the hallway. We're seeing the co-workers that she does not interact with because she seldom comes into the office, what they think of her by looking at her before we get to see her. And like I said, she's trying to make herself as unapproachable as possible. She's a freelancer working at Milton Security. She does these very thorough background checks, which are also pretty illegal because she is hacking into people's computers. I think the um, the filmmakers had a challenge with making the, the design for Elizabeth because they, they did a terrific job on the Swedish trilogy with Numi. Her design was excellent. But I think that they came up with a really terrific look for Lizbeth. The hair I really like because in the the hair, in every scene, it's got like a different look. It can be down, it can be parted, it can be up, it can be messy, it can be mohawk. all over the place, mohawk. I, and, and also, I don't know what you call like those sideburn thingies, those trails of hair that go down her That's face. That's an excellent way, the sideburn <laughs> thingies. <laughs> and so I think they did an excellent job with her hair, especially because it looks so different. It has a great shape and body to it in every sequence. And also it can, it relates to how she's feeling in that moment, like whether she's hungover or or she's just feeling her Lizbeth self and making it look the perfect way she wants it to look. I think the way that the hair looks is excellent. Also, you get a little um, a little Bruce Wayne from the Batman with the eye makeup when she <laughs> for her, in her good for her moment. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. smeared black eye makeup. Where she gets revenge on the rapist. Yeah, absolutely love that. I like how the dragon tattoo on her back. It's not her entire back. I like how it's actually basically the shoulder and trap her left trap. It just basically covers that and a little bit onto her shoulder. I like how it's not the entire back. Make it look a little different from the movie and. Uh, the piercings were all real. Rooney actually did all the piercings. Um, she actually shaved her eyebrows. So she really committed to this role because Rooney at the time, she was relatively unknown. She, before this, she had been in the social network in a couple of those scenes with Jesse Eisenberg uh, playing his ex. And then also she had recently, she was the lead in the the remake for Nightmare on Elm Street, which uh, was... Oh, I forgot yeah, she was in that. That was her first major leading role in the Forgettable film. Forgettable movie. No one saw that. So no one really knew who she was. Kate Mara, her sister, was doing a lot better um, uh, early in her career at this time. Kate was getting a lot more roles. Well, House of Cards was really big at this time. Yeah. Kate was in that. House of Cards. Well, House of Cards didn't... It, this was before House of Cards. Was it? Yeah, Kate okay, was in, mind. like, Shooter... Um, with Mark Wahlberg and a couple other films. So I she, guess you could yeah. say that's kind of big. Yeah, it's, it's, big, it's a big Mark Shooter. Wahlberg movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but she was in a bunch of other things too. So she was she was having a uh, a faster rise in Hollywood. But then this with Rooney, 
it really exploded her. She was nominated for an Oscar as well for lead actress, so which she deserves. She's excellent in the film. Lost to Meryl Streep. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you're gonna lose to someone, <laughs> you lose to Meryl you lose Streep to the goat for the Iron Lady. But I think that Rooney did an excellent job, and she was very involved in the creation of the look of the character. And I think they really nailed it. I think they did something that was true to the book, but also straight away from what they did in, in Sweden because you don't want to duplicate that at all. And I, I really like the clothing. I like uh, the moth-eaten clothes she likes to wear and uh, the fuck you, you fucking fuck shirt. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a legendary shirt now. I get that. Yeah, it's excellent. And I, I really like the aesthetic they created for Lisbeth. Yeah, like Eddie said, the piercings are all real. Multiple ears, eyebrows, nipple piercings. And after filming, she had the ear, nose, eyebrow, and lip piercings removed. However, she kept the nipple piercings in case they were going to do sequels because she said, if I'm going to do more piercings again, these are the ones I don't want to do a second time because they're supposed to be what I've heard is very painful. Ouch. And also, although David Fincher had not requested it, Rooney Mara decided to lose a substantial amount of weight in order to give her character of Elizabeth a bony appearance as described in the books. She got so used to dieting, dur- dur- dieting during the shoot, if you want to call it dieting, uh, <laughs> that Fincher had to encourage her to actually start eating some more food because she probably, like in the movie, yeah. when the officer asked yeah. her, like, when was the last time you eat? She thinks it's a sliding I have a high metabolism. Yeah. But he's just like, no, it's because you're going to puke it when you- I show you these photos. Yeah. I-, I love that scene. And Lisbeth was, it was, uh, I think, maybe the hottest role for years because it was, the book was a sensation. So I think every major actress wanted a, a piece, a, a, a chance to play this role. And there's a huge list of actresses who were considered for Lisbeth Slander. Carrie Mulligan, Elliot Page, Kristen Stewart, Natalie Portman, Mia Wasikowska, Kira Knightley, Anne Hathaway, Olivia Thurby, Emily Browning, Ava Green, Scarlett Johansson, Sophie Lowe, Sarah Snook, Leia Seydoux, Emma Watson, Evan Rachel Wood, and Katie Jarvis. These were all actresses who were either offered the role or they were rejected by David Fincher in the studio. Ultimately, Rooney Mara won the role. Scarlett Johansson was the studio's first choice. They wanted her. And David Fincher, I read an interview where he said Scarlett gave an amazing audition. I mean, she's probably the most talented in yeah. the entire list. Yeah, she's yeah an excellent actor. But he's, David Fincher said, and you can understand his point, he said that the difference with Scarlett Johansson and Rooney Mara is Scarlett for audiences, they can't wait for Scarlett Johansson to take her clothes off. That's what he said, and that's why he didn't cast her. Whereas he said, I think Lizbeth is someone where she's not supposed to be, like, voluptuous and, like, physically super attractive for a lot of people when they see her. So I think that going with Rooney Mara, for that reason— Who may- is a very beautiful person. Yeah, a very beautiful person. But in different—they're beautiful—they have differences, you know? And I think he was like, we can't have someone who's curvy, voluptuous, and also already a sex symbol— and a sex icon, we need to go with an unknown actress who suits the part of the written version of, of Lisbeth Slander. So I understand why he, he rejected Scarlett Johansson, although I, I read Scarlett really wanted the role. Uh, she would have been great, but I think Rooney was a perfect casting for the role. Oh, I agree 100%. There's some other great elements to the film outside of characters that I think are great. For, sh- for sure, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who do all of Fincher's music for his films, I think them, them doing the uh, the Immigrant song, the cover of the Led Zeppelin song with Karen O oh is so great. And then their score, it's just haunting. The, the tinkering bells and the ambience, but also it gets erratic and loud at times, like very loud, um, especially when there's a lot of heart like intense things going on the nine inch nails sure is a really cool cameo that one of the hackers is wearing because that's their band nine inch nails i also love the opening sequence you know fincher always has these really interesting opening sequences and this is kind of just like a a trippy james bondy <laughs> opening sequence because it tells the story of the trilogy and according to david fincher the opening title sequence of the movie is a sort of primordial 
sort of tar and ooze of the subconscious of Elizabeth, sort of her nightmare. Now, Tim Miller and his design studio, Blur, made the opening sequence. And according to Tim, after Fincher asked him to do it, Fincher said, all I'm asking you to do is reinvent any expectations of what a title sequence could be. Their goal was to tell the story in a two and a half minute opening that would foreshadow the entire trilogy. And according to it's Miller, like Mission Impossible, yeah, basically, <laughs> it's Mission Impossible and James Bond opening for sure. And according to Miller, David had a very precise idea of what he wanted, but he points you in a direction instead of pushing you in a direction. And if you thought the opening credits appeared inspired by those starring a certain James Bond spy, you'd be right. The first time we talked about it, he said, "Imagine James Bond if he was a 22-year-old bisexual cutter." That's a quote from David Fincher, and that was supposedly his vision for Elizabeth Salander, the character. And this opening sequence, it's really exciting. We have the song that they produced, the Led Zeppelin cover, the immig- immigrant song going the whole time. It's just out. It's very dark, and there's like black fluids everywhere. And according to Com Arts, a total of 252 shots are included in the two and a half minute clip, and each cut lasts fewer than 24 frames. The sequence was built entirely in computer graphics so that each event could be viewed from multiple camera angles, offering the best compositions, vantage points, and extreme close ups. The final clip used 3D scans of the film's leading actors, along with elements designed and modeled for the film. The most technically challenging part of the project was adding computer-generated fluid simulations to nearly every element in the spot. Black Dream Ooze was the unifying element that established the look of the piece, and it floods, drips, clumps, spurts, and pours in and around everything. The computer simulations required to build such realistic-looking liquids were complex and took hours and hours, sometimes days, just to run. The sequences were then carefully lit in CG to look as if they had been filmed in live action. So, Tim Miller and Blur, they actually have worked with Fincher in the past. He did uh, the CGI effect, the sequence in Fight Club of coming out of the trash can. Oh, going, yeah, yeah. That's, that's cool. So, coming in the opening, coming going from, through like so the microscopic, kitchen, the gas. Yeah, that stuff, but also the coming out of his trash can with all the different branded trash in them. So, he did those as well. So, him and Fincher have had a working relationship for a long time. And Fincher, speaking of CGI, once again proves that. He, along with like Scorsese, are just a couple of the best users of CGI and green screen because this movie has a lot of CGI and it has a lot of green screen, but you wouldn't know it. Just like Gone Girl, just like a couple of his other movies, there are many shots. Like there's a shot of the train that's definitely CGI. A lot of the city shots, especially at night, are CGI. And also enhancing the backgrounds because Iceland, uh, Sweden is so dark at, during this time of period, so they had to brighten up sets and even help build sets in post with CGI. So there's actually an insane amount of CGI that you wouldn't even see because he hides it and disguises it so you don't know it's even there. My favorite shot, one of my favorite shots of the movie is is a green screen shot of after Martin crashes in, it gets uh and and sets off that furnace and just burns alive and then Lisbeth approach is standing right there with the gun. He does this great show, shot of the back of her hip and she um uncocks the gun and then the fire is burning behind her. That's all on a green screen. He filmed it, but it, it looks great. So he's always blending in CGI and green screen throughout his films and lacing it here and there and sprinkling it, and you don't even know it's there, which I think is really terrific. This is actually a funny bit about the motorcycle chase because the tunnel, they filmed the tunnel scene. When they, there's one shot of Lizbeth uh, speeding through the tunnel past those cars when she's chasing Martin, you know, and 
they filmed that in Sweden, but the footage ended up being way too shaky, so they had to do it again, but in L.A., because they couldn't go back to Sweden. So just uh, the way they got around making it look like Sweden was they just had all Volvos and the Volvos inside the tunnel, <laughs> and then that made it look like it was Sweden. And so I love little little troubleshooting and problem-solving, things like that. Only, like, great, smart directors would be like, no one will know. Just throw a couple Swedish cars in there, and they'll, they'll be fine. It's <laughs> <laughs> clever. It's all you got to do. I mean, you can make anywhere look like anything. Exactly, anywhere. yeah. It, Especially an underground concrete tunnel. It's yeah, fine. Who, who's going to know? Exactly. How about we run to our intermission and take a little break, and then we'll get back into Dragon Tattoo, talk about Mikael, talk about Henrik, and more of the story. Yeah, the sounds film. good. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is brought to you by our great friends at Manscaped.com, the leaders in men's grooming around the world. Join the over 2 million men worldwide trusting their products and use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. You get 20% off your entire order and free shipping worldwide. I highly recommend getting their Boxers 2.0. They just dropped these briefs. They sent us in a couple pairs each. And my goodness, Anthony, aren't these the most comfortable briefs you've ever worn in your life? I love them. I legit specifically pick out the days that I wear them because I want to be ultra comfortable those special days. They're great. You sound a little JFK there. I specifically pick out. (laughs) (laughs) Highly recommend getting those. Also, their Platinum 4.0 collection just dropped. It's their best deal yet. This entire package includes the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer that we've been talking about for over a year now. This thing is a rocket ship for your grooming needs. It has a built-in light, 7,000 RPM motor. It's skin safe to the touch waterproof you can legit use this in the shower in the dark and have a wonderful time the weed whacker ear nose trimmer body wash two-in-one shampoo conditioner deodorant anti-chafing ball deodorant ball spray toner boxers and a shed travel bag i highly 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 recommend right now or later today go to manscape.com get all sorts of fun products you know you gotta start grooming up get yourself cleaned up use our coupon code raiders of the lost at checkout, don't forget that. It's really important. And you'll get 20% off and free shipping worldwide. And if you have even more time later today, <laughs> you can head over to our other amazing sponsor, MoviePosters.com, and get yourself a bunch of movie posters with an excellent deal. Use our special promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. They have a gigantic selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable as well as all sorts of sizes, framing, and backlighting. So whatever your poster needs are, MoviePosters.com has you covered. You can get everything from your favorite superhero film, your classic movies, foreign films, TV shows, whatever your heart desires, you can get it at MoviePosters.com. And don't forget to use our promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. All right, let's begin our intermission and start with the movie quotes competition. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. All right, listen. I'm listening. I'm about to do to you what Limp Bizkit did to music in the late 90s. <laughs> um, what do they do the music in the late 90s? They revolutionized it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. Deadpool. Oh, good. Good quote. I think that's he's about to murder, murder somebody. Yeah, <laughs> break stuff. Um, yeah. No, because like, Limp Bizkit is kind of trash. We loved it when we were 13. Yeah, it was great, it was we were great 13. when we were 13. Their dress was so cool. Yeah. Okay, here's my uh, quote. <clears throat> Such a waste of talent. He chose money over power. In this town, a mistake nearly everyone makes. Money is the McMansion in Sarasota that starts falling apart after 10 years. Power is the old stone building that stands for centuries. I cannot respect someone who doesn't see the difference. 
It's a great quote. Um, I have no idea where it's from. That's uh, House of Cards, Frank Underwood. Claire. Claire. It was, uh, yeah. It's a great quote. It's from the, uh, it's from the pilot. Ah, gotcha. Kate Mara. All right. Movie pop quiz time. No, no, it's... Uh, <laughs> no, Kate Mara's in the show. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, Robin Wright Penn. Yeah. That's right, Robin Wright, too. Yeah. Um, and Joel Kinnaman. And Joel Kinnaman. <laughs> Anyone else you want to throw there? <laughs> um, and Maharshal Ali. That was uh, my... Shoot, that was my quiz question. What uh, other dragon tattoo actor was at House of Cards besides uh, Robin Wright? It, man. I got another one I can do. All right, it my was, movie pop quiz. <laughs> I'm an idiot. We all know. Now... Rooney and Kate Mara, the sisters, are both NFL football royalty. They're the granddaughters of the owners of two NFL franchises. What are the teams? The Pittsburgh Steelers and the New York Giants. Correct. The Mara's father's side co-owns the New York Giants, while their mother's side co-owns the Pittsburgh Steelers. So they grew up just... Football royalty. That's, yeah. Yeah. Must be nice. What's your movie release year, though? Oh, I skipped that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so sorry. I was so excited to get to the pop quiz because I told you anything before I, we want me to do film. my quiz now? Yeah. So, okay. Before we start filming, I'm like, Anthony, you have a great pop quiz question. All right. What uh, What Marvel actor also starred in House of Cards? Mahershala Ali. I mean, um, already in, in Marvel movies. Oh, it's already, already been in Marvel yeah. movies. Hmm. Already been in already been in a Marvel movie. Like, I'm not sure if... I don't think they were in two. I think they were in one But movie. they're not necessarily like a superhero. They play a superpower person. Okay. Okay. Yeah. A comic book superpower being. And they're in House person. of Cards. Man, I haven't seen House of Cards in a minute. They're not They're not in the entire series, but they're in um, maybe like 15 episodes. It's a lot of episodes. Yeah. One full season for sure. Man. Well, first of all, what an iconic show before a creep show, Kevin Spacey. Yeah. We loved it. We loved that show. Really well made. Um, hmm. Marvel actor that was in House of Cards, 15 episodes. Uh, I don't know. Corey Stoll. Oh, he played the governor. The yeah. He played uh he played a Not representative. Wasp, yellow yeah. jacket. Yeah. Yellow yellow great, jacket. Great, great. Yeah. Great question. Thanks. Off the top of my head. He's great in that show. He's too. excellent, yeah. That was like his rise. That got him that got him Ant Man. And I think. he also got the strain after yeah. that. Yeah, the, yeah. Which is a great book series. I recommend yeah. it. Um R- Russo, something Russo was his character name. Yeah, just like Senator Russo. <laughs> yeah, Senator Russo is, but yeah. Okay, what's your movie release here? Hannibal. 2001. Nice. Oh, yeah. You got it. Yeah. I've listened to that score so many times. <laughs> I know the date. <laughs> is that Hans? Yeah. Excellent score, by the way. Okay. Obviously, it's Hans. What year did House of Cards premiere? 2013. Ding 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 got ding, it. ding ding ding. Let's go. Ding, ding. Let's go. Good job. All right, who what do we got for haters of the week supporters? What do we got? What do we got? We got some haters. We had some haters last week, but I don't know if we'll be able to top that. We got unsubscribers, not like cruel, evil haters like last time. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Well, let me pull up a great five star review that we have. We got a bunch of let's see. How about Caleb Jeter? Best film podcast in the world, because Caleb's the best. Thanks, Caleb. Anthony and James are my favorite podcasters ever. I've never connected or cared about influencers as much as I do. Them. <laughs> Caleb, so sweet. I listen to them every day, and I can truly say that it makes my day so much better. No other movie podcast is giving us what they do. They are hardworking and dedicated to give us the best and 
best, biggest and best film content they can possibly give us. Raiders of Lost podcast deserve all the love and praise. Love you guys. I'm so excited for the future of the podcast to see how much y'all grow as y'all become the biggest film podcasters in the podcasting world. I'm proud to be able to call you my friends. I can't wait to meet y'all. Heck yeah, Caleb. Thanks, Caleb. Hopefully we'll do a a fan event very soon. Absolutely. You know Caleb's going to be there because he's the best. You're the man. All right, I have some unsubscribers. Also, congratulations to Caleb. He also won our movie poster contest that we did last week. He got a great Stranger Things one. No one deserved it more. Mm -mm. Okay, so unsubscribers, Luke 101 in our Elvis review. So for YouTube, we actually didn't didn't film our Elvis review. We just recorded it, and then we posted it on YouTube with a super cut of photos from the movie. And then so Luke 101 wrote, are you guys too lazy to sit up the camera now? Unsubscribe. <laughs> Sometimes. I said, yeah, we were. <laughs> it's a lot, man. And then uh, Cornflake wrote, didn't recognize that there's another excellent Elvis movie with Kurt Russell starring Elvis. Unsubscribe. <laughs> All right. Um, our uh, Godfather shout oh, out. Oh, Godfather shout out. Who we got? Angie Ramirez. Angie. Our great friend, Angie. She's been a huge supporter of the show. Uh, she's joined our Patreon as a godfather. She also has her own podcast, Tell You in Person, which is excellent with with Eileen. We love that show. So if you want to listen to that, go head over to their their so- social media pages, or you can find them on Spotify and Apple, uh, Tell You in Person. Excellent podcast. Angie has chosen Giant for her review, which nice. was uh, James Dean's last movie, which she was nominated for, for an Oscar. Wow. Yeah. It's a great film. Good, excellent. Good Western. Angie, thank you so much. For all the support and the kindness and the generosity. Angie, she's the sweetest. She's, she's awesome. She's a sweet, yeah. wonderful person. Thank you so much. We're happy to have you on our membership and part of our Patreon team. We love interacting with you, having you on the Discord and in all of our group chats. You're the best. On this day in film history, today is July 18th. In 1959, The Nun Story, starring Audrey Hepburn, premieres in Los Angeles. In 1986, Aliens is released. In 2001, Jurassic Park 3 is released. In 2003, Bad Boys 2 and Johnny English are released. In 2004, Entourage premiered. In 2008, The Dark Knight and Mamma Mia are released. In 2014, Crazy Stupid Love is released. And happy birthday to Vin Diesel, Kristen Bell, Priyanka Chopra, and Chase Crawford. Family. Family. (laughs) (laughs) My streaming recommendation is The Gray Man just dropped on Netflix on July 15th this week. So definitely watch it because we were probably going to be doing an episode on it very soon. My streaming recommendation is The Terminalist, Chris Pratt's new series on Amazon Prime. It's a great, tough, dark action thriller series. It's a blend of like Tom Clancy thriller with like um jack ryan and rambo it's excellent it's it's hard-nosed it's just a bunch of action high octane thrills i loved it so if you're a fan of that kind of stuff check it out now back into the girl with the dragon tattoo from 2011 indeed we talked about elizabeth plenty and we'll get to her in a little bit more no we can't talk about her ever again (laughs) but i think the greatest strength of this movie is the relationship between elizabeth and mikhail and they don't even meet until an hour, over an hour into the movie, which is really interesting. It's basically two movies on their own, yeah. and then they converge. And now Mikel, he... they show him a former super movie. <laughs> it's like <laughs> a super movie. I like that. Now Mikel Blomqvist is a journalist and publisher of Millennium Magazine that focuses mainly on economics and social problems. He is described as being a semi-celebrity in Sweden, a status which is obviously boosted in the opening of the film, where the public inquiry of Swedish entrepreneur that he had in his magazine becomes a scandal of Hans Erik Wennerstrom after Mikkel gets sued for libel and defamation from Wennerstrom and 
this has a huge impact on Mikel's not just court of public opinion, his magazine, which is is doomed to Millennium. go bankrupt, Millennium. Um, he is incredibly stressed out. He's lost all of his money from it. It's just basically the the worst problem he could have ever imagined in his life. And ironically, he was basically set up by Venerstrom to fail and to have the def- defamation against him. But fortunately, Lisbeth, at the end of the film, and we learn more about later on in the trilogy, helped uncover the truth that Mikel was right all along. I've always loved Daniel Craig, but when I saw this movie, I was like, wow, he is really an amazing actor. He's He's the glue of the movie. Uh, he has a lot of screen time, and uh, the thing with this script is it, it involves characters like asking questions a lot, especially Daniel Craig's character, Mikel. And if with a less talented actor, the, so many questions that can sound like kind of fake and not that real or authentic, but he manages to – a lot of this mundane dialoguing, it's tough to say questions so often as an actor, but he makes it feel, feel so real and authentic and – and true and it really made me feel like this guy is an amazing actor and he also commits completely like he did so much stuff in this film physically uh being tied up in the uh, kill room he actually did that and they really did um choke him and they really did suffocate him with the uh, plastic bags so like he just the fact that james bond this guy who is making millions and he's like a huge star he doesn't have to do this stuff but he's like I'm willing to do whatever David Fincher wants me to do. If this is what he says I have to do for the scene, I'm down for it. And it's that commitment that you can really see on screen. Uh, he really put everything into this movie. And that that kill room scene is just really terrific. It's terrifying. It's one of the scariest scenes I've seen in recent years. And he they suffocated him so much that he actually passed out during one of the takes. Um, they're actually putting a bag over his face. Like, what actors, like, how many actors would be like, yeah, that's fine with me. You can suffocate me until I pass out. Let's do that. <laughs> so the fact that he's willing to do that. And also, I think Daniel Craig, like, his portrayal of fear in this film is really terrific, especially when he's investigating Martin's um, house and then Martin shows up. And uh, that scene is, the, I think, the strongest dialogue scene in the film. And the way that he's eliciting fear is so fantastic and so realistic, I, I was just blown away. I felt like he was really going to die. And like my one of my favorite moments of the film is when he's tied up and hanging, and then Martin hands him the glass of scotch. He's like, yeah, you dropped yours. It broke. And then Daniel Craig just takes the glass, and he just looks down at it. But he's like, he gives this look like, I'm dead. I'm, this is it. And it was like, I was like, that. he's so in it. it, it I totally believed it. Yeah, even in the kitchen, he looks so terrified. And he's trying to but hide hiding it. it. Yeah. But Danny's such a great actor. Danny Craig, kid. He's so awesome and incredible. And, you know, do you see the hopelessness to actually leave his body? Like, he knows he's going to die. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, Henrik Wenger, played by... The late and great Christopher Plummer used to one run used to run one of the largest industrial firms in Sweden, and that's now what Martin Wenger is in control of. He coaxes Mikkel to investigate this over forty year mystery of his missing niece Harriet, who disappeared in nineteen sixty six when she was only sixteen. And Martin, I mean Henrik, knows and assumes in in his heart that she was murdered because there's no way she could have left the island. At the time when there was the parade, the arm parade, the car accident on the bridge, the shore, I mean, the current on the water is too great. So even if she drowned or something, they would have found her that there's no way she could have disappeared from the island. And she coax- he coaxes Mikel because of Mikel's financial issues. He offers later in the film to become a partner of Millennium Magazine once they find out they're going bankrupt. And also he offers evidence that, according to Henrik, will 
take down Venestrom, which Mikkel finds out later at the end of the film after they've solved the mystery, would not work because the evidence is too old. It's 35 years old. He couldn't use it in court to change his opinion or to take down Venestrom. That's where Elizabeth comes on and later in the film. But Christopher Plummer is such an excellent character in this movie. Such a great actor. He's really kind of like the heart of the story, even though he's it's in his, and out. Yeah, it's his grief. He's in and out. Yeah. But the love he has for Harriet is really the, the strongest emotional connection in the film, I think, for the audience members. And even though he has the heart attack, comes back later on. I think the reunion of Harriet and Henrik is just so emotional powerful and just a, such a feel good moment. And the move this movie actually has one of the biggest uh moments missing from the book and Swedish films. So uh Mikael thinks he's being driven insane by the killer of Harriet by uh being sent every year uh a pl- a flower, a different kind of flower species framed. And because it's something that he always gave Harriet as a gift for her birthday. No, th- Harriet got him. Harry Harriet got him for his birthday, I mean, I'm sorry. And so he thinks that Whoever killed Harriet is sending him these flowers every year um, as a way of just, like, toying with him. But in reality, in the book and in the Swedish film, we, re- we learn that Harriet had been sending them to Heinrich as a sign of she thought she was relaying to him, I'm alive and I'm well. Like, that was her clue to him saying she thought he got it, but he was confused and he mixed it up. And so he thought it was a serial killer sending the flower, the framed flowers when, in fact, it was Harriet. And they never, they actually never touched on that in the Fincher movie. They just, Harriet and, and uh, Heinrich reunite, and she never explains it was me sending the flowers all this time. I thought she said that. No, I don't think so. I thought she might have said that. May, I might be wrong. I but think, I'm pretty sure she says that she was the one sending them. Maybe. Maybe. It's I possible. Think, I th- I'm pretty sure. So, everything you just said, it could be, is libel. <laughs> Maybe I just missed that line. I think you missed that line. I'm pretty damn sure that they, they bring it up. All right. Yeah, well, yeah. I, hey, you seem confident. I think he says like it was you. It was you sending the flowers. Uh-huh. I'm pretty damn sure. Okay, pretty I think, confident. Yeah, you seem pretty confident. And so, anyways, so I am completely. It's possible. I'm completely mistaken. It's probable. Probable. That you're, it's probable. <laughs> but anyway, still, <laughs> if Henrik was just like, oh, it's from her. She's alive. The, all yeah. those years. But you understand, Henrik. You know, the loss of Harriet was so traumatic for yeah. him. And Harriet is the granddaughter of Henrik's brother Gottfried who was a Nazi and an abuser of Harriet and her brother, Martin. He died as a drunk in the river, but we'd later find out that Harriet was the one who killed him after he came to attack her, and she drowned him in the river with the boat row. And then Martin, her brother, was also abused. They both were sexually abused by their father. And when Harriet, after he, she we found out she killed uh, her father, Gottfried, Martin basically replaced Gottfried as her new abuser, her new sexual abuser, physical abuser, and also became the new serial killer because obviously this great mystery is what happened to Harriet, but also Mikkel and Elizabeth start uncovering that it's serial murderers, is a serial murderer out there attacking and killing women based on biblical passages relaying to Leviticus in the Bible. Killing Jewish women. Jewish women specifically, except for the great mystery that Elizabeth realizes Harriet's name isn't Jewish. She's not a Jewish person. So she's the only one of all these victims that supposedly was killed that isn't Jewish, which is a a clue that she wasn't actually killed. Yeah, it's a really disturbing take, and it seems like it's a, a serial killer 
that seems real life, like true to life. Like so there would be a serial killer who would kill people based upon these Bible passages. It seems like maybe that's been done before. So I thought it was a brilliant take on a, a serial killer villain for this uh, for this book and for this movie. And then I think Stellan Skarsgård was amazing. My favorite thing about Martin in this movie is his house. And because Martin is all about presenting uh, a surface that is acceptable and polite and open. And it's his disguise to show the reality of the monster he is within in the basement within the house. And what's really brilliant about the design of the house is it's floor to ceiling windows. And it's just basically Martin saying, I have nothing to hide. You can look into my home. I'm not doing anything nefarious. You're safe. Come yeah. on in. And I'll, But it, it prevents anyone from, from ever being suspicious of him because they can just look right inside his home anytime they want. So it's a really brilliant thing for the serial killer to be like, the best way for me to hide is in plain sight. You know what I mean? Versus the rest of the vangers who hide yeah. as recluses in their houses and cottages. Exactly. So he's the last person of someone to expect out from the outside looking in that he is doing terrible things. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The kill room is really fascinating because he has a bunch of old tech, including like an old uh, tape, tape, uh, videotape recorder that he uses to film his victims. And Mark, I mean, he's he's wealthy. He could afford new cameras or, or like like a modern camera and setup and everything, but he's still using this old VHS tape recorder. And I think it's because since he start since he built that kill room, which you could say was in the eighties, and he's been using it. It's like that's been like a time machine that doesn't change because he's so happy with it. He doesn't want anything to change in that room, and he doesn't want to change that part of himself. So that's why he hasn't updated this old retro tech that he has inside of it. And that's why he plays that song from the eighties because he's like when he's in his basement as his true self. It's like it's like he's like it's like a time machine that he enters and nothing's changed. And I think that's why he plays the eighties song and why he has that old tech. And yeah, Stellan Skarsgård, such a great actor. He's great as villains. You know, he's he's played a few tremendous ones. Quite Baron, a few, yeah. Baron Harkonnen most recently was awesome. And then I think Martin is one of his best roles too. You know, the serial killer, like Anthony just said, hiding in plain sight. And then his kill room is just so creepy, but also kind of clever and brilliant. You know, it's soundproofed. It just feels sterile. And versus like the person he is in the real world, you know, he's, he's very congenial. He's helpful to... Mikkel, until Mikkel starts investigating too closely, that's when he kills the cat, when, you know, they're starting to actually uncover some truths about what's going on. Martin's clever enough to know that Henrik isn't writing a memoir, which is supposedly the cover of why Mikkel is there, is writing a memoir about Henrik in the in, in the industry, but trying to hide the fact that he's investigating Harriet. Martin's not an idiot. He's very clever. He understands what's going on. And one of the, my favorite scenes to watch on a rewatch of this movie is the dinner that Mikkel has with uh, Martin and his girlfriend. I think her name's Helene, where you hear a woman screaming. He's like, oh, I must have left something open. And I love how he says it wasn't a window. I, yeah. he, he doesn't say, I must have left a window open. He says, I must have left something open. They're all like, yeah, it's probably the wind. He, and he's just, but it's someone screaming. It's and terrifying. And he, he goes and closes the door. So it's, it's so, so scary. The kill room itself is such a, crazy traumatic scene it's hard to watch at times but it's also really fascinating because serial killers are fascinating you know i love some of the lines he says where 
He's like talking to Mikel, who's tied up. He's like, he's like, you're a journalist. Ask me some questions. He wants to brag about it. And then it. he starts asking himself questions. Yeah. He's like, what do I do with the bodies? That's an excellent question to start. <laughs> and then he talks about how what he does takes discipline. It's a science of a thousand details. And I love the conversation they have about why don't people trust their instincts? You know, we're not that different, you and I. We both have urges. Satisfying mind requires more towels. But in terms of the ist- instincts, it's like, why did you come into the house? You knew something was wrong. But the fear of offending is more d- difficult than the more fear, powerful more, than- more terrifying than the fear of pain. Mm-hmm. And it's a fact. You know, you'd rather come in here. You know I'm the killer, basically. You know something's wrong. You even have a knife in your pocket. But you came back into the house. Why? Because I offered you a drink. So the fear of offending is more powerful than the fear of pain, which is so fascinating. And also, Mikel still thinks that he killed Harriet. And he gets so de- so upset and defensive when he's like, you found out what happened to her, what happened to her. And Mikael's like, you're the one who killed her. He's like, what are you talking about? What, what's the Useless use of you? fucking detective. Useless de- detective. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's just a very sick man. But it's interesting because he's a serial killer that was created by a previous serial killer, his father. Usually in serial killer situations, not in every movie, but there are stories of it. But they're not created by somebody else who was a previous serial killer. It's usually from years of sexual physical yeah. abuse. So it's really fascinating that there's a serial killer that was created by a previous serial killer who was his father and you can actually see that imprinted onto on onto martin and fincher's always been a great director of actors in terms of how they're moving a scene and how they behave and there's this moment that reveals that martin still is he's still overcoming trauma from his father uh, and his father was extremely dominating even to him even though martin's this successful serial killer and confident man once he talks about his father, he becomes extremely insecure. And you can see this because he starts, he mentioned his father. And then what Stellan Skarsgård does is he starts like scratching his hand anxiously. And then he gets up and he starts, and he squirts hand sanitizer all over his hand and he cleans his hands. That's, he does that once he starts talking about his father, which shows a deep insecurity and longstanding trauma from due to his father. And it's just a great little moment. It might fly under the radar, but if you watch the movie enough, you can see what these great actors are doing in the scene. And that's exactly what Stellan Skarsgård as Martin is doing. He's showing the insecurity he has about his father. And the disdain he has for his father, even though they're both serial killers, he still looks, he now looks down on his father in terms of his father's methods, how sloppy he was. He left his victims everywhere. And now Martin's turned it into basically a perfect science. And it takes two people and someone as incredibly clever and intelligent as Elizabeth and a great investigator like Mikkel to be able to solve the case that has puzzled the detectives for for decades now. Yeah, I love how they both solve the case um, in different areas, obviously allowing them to be split up. And it's really a, a chance that the security guard wasn't looking when Lisbeth's left. Otherwise, Martin would have gotten the call. So that's like the most important part of the movie is yeah. the security guard not seeing Lisbeth leave the facility. She's going through old files at our place. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for bringing her to me. So it's that little tiny chance encounter that allows Lisbeth to slip by without Martin knowing that she's on her way. It's a great cross-cutting yeah. sequence of Lisbeth and Mikkel discovering the truth that it's Martin because I love how Lisbeth even gives Mar- Mikkel credit, like saying like it's incredible what you discovered just from this one photograph that you know there's something at the autumn parade that Harriet saw that caused her to feel fear and run away basically and leave the parade and then they both investigate this situation differently. She's investigating the Bible passages with the other murders and, and the woman who've been killed and connecting the dots between the Bible passages from Leviticus with the with the deaths of the Jewish woman and they're both using the photo as reference for what could have happened. They both. And 
and then they both discover separately that Martin was across the street. He's the boy in that uniform that I can't remember which woman it was that um, Martin killed, but he went to school with her. That's what the pen, like the the patch on the suit jacket is. It's the crest of that school. And then Mikel figures it out that he was also he's also in that photo as well. So they both figure out it's Martin at the same time. Well, Mikel a little quicker while she's getting the coffee and everything. Yeah, yeah. He's in the basement being hung. Yeah, yeah. Before she comes with the nine iron, whacks him in the face, breaks that jaw right open. Incredible climax, incredible chase. Like I said earlier, I love how in this film version, Elizabeth is the cause for Martin to drive his car off the road, thinking he's going to kill her with his car. Ends up killing himself by accident, blowing up, which is so deserved. I wish he would have just suffered more. And there's there's another monstrous man in this movie who we haven't touched on, but has a major part to play in Lizbeth's storyline, and that's Bjorman, who takes over her as being a ward of the state and oversees her her livelihood. And he's just a true a true monster. Uh, he there are difficult scenes in this movie to watch. This movie is not for the faint of heart. Um, there's a difficult rape scene and a difficult sexual assault scene to watch. And it's very tough. Uh, Fincher, I mean, he filmed it in a way that he's like, he's showing you what's happening. Um, and it's 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 hard to watch. Uh, and it's difficult. But it's important for Elizabeth's story. It shows that all her life she's just been fighting to just be an individual and independent. And no one will let her be independent or be her own self. And then it also turns into a really incredible redemptive moment of a good for her storyline where she finally takes control of the situation and she tattoos Bierman's chest and basically controls him now. It shows her turning the tables on her abuser uh, that we've seen in, in great films like Tarantino films of the victim turning the tables on the abuser. It's a really terrific storyline. Uh, and Rooney Mara did an amazing job with it. Yeah, it's hard to watch. Yeah. And this guy is despicable, horrific. And she, he's even more of a pervert and disgusting than she even could dream figured of. Yeah. Because she very cleverly brings the pocketbook on the second visit where she, with the camera, with the, camera yeah. the secret camera, she's like, I thought you were just going to make me give you a blowjob again, which was as disgusting and horrible as it could have possibly been. But I, I misjudged how sick you are of a human being. And he yeah. forcibly rapes her. And then she does the exact opposite and rapes him with the metallic freaking dildo and kicks it into his <laughs> ass. And it's, it's so disturbing and disgusting. But at the same time, you're like, he deserves let's it. go. He deserves every Tattoos. Yeah. I am a rapist on his chest which is so deserved as well and she wants to him to feel fear for the rest of his entire life and doesn't deserve to ever be with anyone ever again whether it's consensual or not and it's terrific terrific that she finally took control back of her life it's really exactly, important because for her character she, she's a ward of the state even yeah. the state is failing her the government's failing her she's being she had a yeah. good situation with her legal guardian unfortunately he had a stroke and she was the only person that she had feelings for and could trust really and now she's being taken into the government control again by a, a horrible person. You can assume she's had legal guardians pretty close to this guy. If it wasn't sexual abuse, it was just horrific behavior or just yeah. mistreating her in general. And unfortunately, the the one the guardian she had before had the stroke, and he was just a kind man who she really loved. You get more of him in the book. Yeah, there's a lot more of their relationship in the book and how they playing chess has been a commonality in their lives, uh, a regular uh, practice. And, and Bjorman, he's just like a true sociopath because like, he acts like he doesn't. He's not doing anything wrong. He's like, "Do you want to ride home? I can drive you home." It's so terrible, problem. horrible. And then he's like, "Oh, he's like, he's when she comes unannounced, he's like, oh, oh, hey, come inside. Like, how are you? Like, how are? Like, how are? Like, what? How are you? Are you fucking kidding me? It's unbelievable. He's he's such a horrible psychopath, just as bad as Martin. And just like the actual title of the of the movie in the original book, 
of the Swedish film. It's called Men Who Hate Women. That's what the title is. Oh, wow. And they changed it to The Girl with the Dragon, t- Dragon Tattoo for American adaptations of the books and the novel, uh, in the movie. So the original title for the series of the first book is Men Who Hate Women. And so Martin and Bjurman are two examples, as well as the Nazis and the Banger family. And there's more other characters in the book that yeah. are, are, that show this as well. And it's, he's just a horrific character. And like he thinks that the, if I give her more money, then it compensates for what, what I I'm just doing. what yeah. horrific thing I just did to her. Like he she gives he gives her a ten thousand dollar check after the rape scene, yeah. which is horrific. Like yeah. you think that's gonna solve her problems? And so she she could she can't catch a break in life. Even the scene where she's in the subway and she gets almost her backpack stolen and robbed. Fortunately, she fights off the guy, gets her backpack, but her laptop is destroyed. And that's why she's dependent on Bjerman to get more money because her laptop's broken. She can't work. She can't make a living. She can't get income and she can't do what she's supposed to do. And she's, she's a hacker. You know, that's her life is hacking and obviously the photographic memory and everything, but her, inquisitivity and also being an incredible one of the best hackers on the planet is also what defines her and without a computer there's so much more detail in the book about her connection with her computer and technology how important it is to her to be able to use the laptop to be able to use a computer that's basically part of her being is being on a computer yeah it's 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 she's such a great fleshed out character so interesting because the hackers in movies They've always been the cliche of like some punky young kid and he's like drinking like a Red Bull and hot like, pockets and like talking to a government <laughs> agent like they're an idiot and just like, I need blah, 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 blah. And then I can do it in two minutes and then that's it. And like that's hacking in movies for fucking 30 years. And it's just like, it's like, it never feels realistic. But then uh, I think a movie like this shows like what that culture is like, what these people are like, what they're like seeing their homes and how it's like they don't really care what they eat. They just need fuel to keep typing, basically. So it's Red Bulls and junk food and, and sugary snacks, and that's like basically what they eat and drink because they're just like up all night at, on, uh, at all hours. And I think they did a great job of, of probably accurately capturing the culture of what hacker life is like. Yeah, they're probably – they're recluses. They're probably yeah. uh, all socially dependent and non – Antisocial, probably just like yeah. Elizabeth Salander. They spend tw- uh, twenty hours a day on a computer, so they can't be like a person who like is super sociable and very friendly and just like mainstream. Mm-hmm. They they do a decent job of showing how great she is at hacking. Sometimes, like in terms of sharing, seeing Venerstrom's screen, screen and yeah. stuff like that, him sending emails. But like it goes into way more depth and detail of how incredible She's of a actually, hacker yeah. she is in the book. So, which I highly recommend. It's really cool how they talk about it. Mm-hmm. Other than that, this movie does have some very funny moments. I think the cat the is cat hysterical. Scenes are great. So funny. Unfortunately, the cat gets decapitated <laughs> and his arms broken in half. Really unfortunate. But there's some great comedic moments and lines here and there between Mikkel and Henrik and and Mikkel and Lisbeth and their relationship is very sweet. You know, when she he's she's the first person, she, he's the first person she's ever let basically open up into into her life and. Yeah. And with. the sex scenes are realistic. Mm-hmm. They don't feel like Hollywood movie sex scenes. They seem like authentic. Yeah, they do. Yeah. He's like, he's they're having sex and she's like about to have an orgasm. And he's like, you know what? I just thought of another possibility. She's like, hold, hold on. on one second. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, another possibility. What if she, if Anita is Harriet? Um, other than that, I think we kind of pretty much covered a lot of stuff. Yeah, I, I love the movie. It's a dense movie. It's terrific. And, and you know, it's Fincher, uh, the... HD cameras, the digital cameras are much more advanced when he got to this in 2011 than from Zodiac and from uh, Benjamin Button where he was using basically HD cameras. And so the visuals are just stunning. He had a lot more control with how he could look, make it look. And 
I love it. It's his typical blue, green, yellow color aesthetic in the scenes combined with the saturation and really sets himself apart visually from any other filmmaker. Again, you get the, the camera following the movements of the actors precisely. When the actor moves, the camera's moving with them. Uh, and just very controlled uh, camera work. And it just is beautiful. Uh, no one makes movies look the way he makes them look. Yeah, they're great. I actually have a really fun fact, cool fun fact about this movie. Let's hear it. So Michael, it better ne- be cool. Actor Michael Nyquist, who I believe passed away. Yeah, he died. He, a couple um, years ago. he, you would recognize him from John Wick. He's like the guy's the father first in villain. the first one. Yeah. He's like the mafia dad. He tells the boogeyman story, the Bubba Yaga story. He plays Michael Bloomquist in the Swedish versions. And while filming a scene in the diner for the American version of the Dragon Tattoo, the cast and crew were surprised to find out that Ellen Nyquist, daughter of Michael Nyquist, was working there as the waitress. This is when Mikkel goes to get the sandwich and coffee in the beginning in the first act of the film. And so after finding out, they wrote in a few extra lines for her to say, and they allowed her to interact and be an extra or an actor on the scene with Daniel Craig. That's a cool fun fact. So that the waitress is yeah. actually uh, Michael Nyquist's daughter. I have some uh, cool fun facts, too. Do you want to maybe hear them? Can I hear fun cool facts first, or do they have to be cool fun facts? I can do fun cool facts. All right, do fun cool facts. All right, so uh, there's a, a sequence where Daniel Craig uh, grabs a – he catches a water bottle that fell off the top of the fridge. Oh, yeah. That was, that was unplanned. It was an accident. But uh, Craig, just being like a great actor, just kept it, kept it in the moment and stayed in character, caught it in this – just continued on the scene, and then David Fincher kept that in the shot. All that James Bond training, yeah. choreography, okay. and fighting. He's got like reflexes. great reflexes. Yeah. Two of the movie's main taglines for the posters went, Evil shall with evil be expelled, and also, What is hidden in snow comes forth in the thaw. These are actually old Swedish proverbs. Stellan Skarsgård told these proverbs to David Fincher during production, and Fincher liked them so much, and he thought they fit the story perfectly that he made them taglines for the movie on the posters. Can I can I correct your uh, pronunciations? Proverbs. 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 Yeah, proverbs. <laughs> Someone, in the, a lot of people are probably like, did you say proverbs? <laughs> See, I'm, I'm Italian brain right now. It's all Kate. Um, also, numero- Proverbe. <laughs> Proverbe. <laughs> Uh, Numi Rapace uh, has such a beloved and well-received performance as Lizbeth in the Swedish trilogy that many wanted her to play the role again for the American adaptation, but she turned down the offer saying that she already played the character in three movies and she was done with it. So I wouldn't want to do the same thing in six movies yeah. either, unless you're Marvel and you're getting paid big bucks. Both the main characters of this movie, Mikael Blumpkist and Lizbeth Salander, they don't appear on screen together until 76 minutes into the film. So well over an hour into the film's runtime. That's why when they finally meet and they have the team up, it's just it's just so rewarding. Yeah, it's and great. I love when they're together, every scene. Uh, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo was shot over a period of 160 days, which is a lot. The reason for this was because while they were shooting in Sweden, the lack of daylight prevented them from shooting for hours on end. And so especially for on-location exterior sets, many of the sets actually required lighting several days beforehand before they even started shooting because they had to get enough light set for each um, set they were working on. So that extended the shooting time. To compare 160, uh, Fight Club took 132 days to shoot. Joel Kinnaman, a famous Swede and American actor, appeared in a role in this movie, in a basically non-speaking role. He played the character Christer Malm, who actually has a much larger role in both the second and third books, which is why a high-profile Swedish actor took the role he, th- he thought it would be a big franchise-building role. He'd have more to do in the second films. Unfortunately, they never got made. Yeah, so, and J- J- uh, Joel Kinnaman, 
uh, rising star at the time was basically an extra in this movie. He has he's in one shot and he just says like three words. He's in, no, he's in three shots, but he, he says you hear one line. He says he says you gotta get that phone call in your office to Erica. <laughs> That's all you hear him say. But he's in the background of like three or four other shots. Oh yeah, no, let's not forget about Robin Wright as Erica. Yeah, yeah Robin Wright Penn's great, incredible yeah, actress. Robin Wright, she, yeah. she's so great. Um, and obviously Erica, she does a she's an American actor, does a Swedish accent, uh, and she's tremendous. Obviously. While prepping for the kill room scene between Martin and Mikkel, uh, the crew and producers found themselves wondering what kind of music should Martin play when he presses play on the stereo. Uh, they didn't have anything in mind, and so but Daniel Craig, uh, according to feature, according to David Fincher, Daniel Craig, to give him credit where credits due, immediately sat up in his chair and said, "Orinoco flow." Uh, which is the song they ended up using for the scene. Uh, they thought he was having a stroke, and no one knew what that meant because they had never heard of that song, but Daniel Craig pulled out his iPod, played the track for Fincher, Skarsgård, and writer Steve Zalian, and they couldn't stop laughing and thought it was perfect, and it was, quote, the greatest thing for a serial murderer to have this music playing as he kills people. Creepy. Creepy stuff. All right, that wraps our episode on The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, directed by David Fincher. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Be sure to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Don't forget to check out the Swedish versions as well. Great trilogy to complete the franchise of the original trilogy. The books recommend it so much. Thank you so much again for tuning in around the world. Take care, y'all. Thanks so much for tuning in to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to subscribe. If you're new, hit the like button, leave a comment. Find us on all audio streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us. Find us on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to check out one of these other videos right here for more content on our favorite films and breaking down all kinds of movie content. Thanks so much. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.